name is Rashid Shabazz. I'm the Chief Marketing and Storytelling Officer with Color of Change. Thank you so much for coming out this afternoon for a special conversation that we're very excited to host in partnership with the Open Society Foundations and Black Star Film Festival. Can we give them a round of applause? Um, at Color Change every day, we fight on behalf of black people. With, we're the largest online racial justice organization with over 1.5 million members. And we organize a lot to transform the issues that most affect us every single day. But we often hold that, those issues within the framework of what we talk about narrative and storytelling. We know that the stories that are told about our community have a direct impact on the policies and the practices that are created that impact the lives of black and brown people every single day. This conversation we're very excited for because often we'll talk about the content creators and the producers and the executives, but we really wanted to spend this conversation talking about the director. And the director being such a powerful force in the visionary of content that's created, what gets left on the floor, what gets put into the film, the conversation about aesthetics and how those things come together, particularly from a black lens, but also a humanizing lens. And so I'm excited to welcome um, the moderator who's got to introduce our special guest um, that we're excited for and celebrate her premiere and just the work that she's doing now. Um, but I want to introduce uh, my friend, my colleague, um, someone who's dear to all of us, Mayori Holmes. She is the um, director of Black Star Film Festival. I also want to acknowledge that in the audience we have our board member, um, Dream Hampton, who helped to facilitate, facilitate today's conversation. And so without further ado, please welcome Maori um, up to the stage, who will welcome our guest. Thank you, Rashid, and thank you, Dream. Um, so I'll just, I have a really short bio to read about Janixa, and um, then ask her to come up. Uh, Janixa Bravo has eight short films under her belt, and now two feature films, 2017's Lemon and Zola, which premiered here on Friday night. So without further ado, welcome Janixa Bravo. Hi. Anybody in the room see uh, Zola this week? Thank Great. you. <laughs> <laughs> How many people read the Twitter thread? Woo! Yeah. <laughs> I'm very excited about this. <laughs> um, so let's get into a little bit of background. Um, I know these questions are hard because you answer them all the time, but assuming no one knows anything, um, can you tell us a little bit about um, what Baby Janixa wanted to do? Baby Janixa wanted to be a track star. Uh, I. I don't actually entirely remember this, but it's sort of something my parents have said to me that then I believe I remember it, uh, which was 1984 Olympics. I believe it's Jackie Joyner Kersey is running, and I point, and I'm like, I want to do that. And then I started running pretty soon after that. My parents got me a coach. I competitively ran. I grew up in Panama. Uh, both of my parents are Panamanian, and I ran competitively from like four until I was 16 years old, and I was in training to go to the Junior Olympics, and so I wanted to be a track star first, and then somewhere in there, I wanted to be an actor, and that's not what I'm, not doing either of those now. <laughs> well, sometimes you act. <laughs> sometimes a little bit, yeah. 
if people will let me, yes. <laughs> um, so when did you come to the States? I was born in New York. Um, both of my parents, like I said, are Panamanian. I feel like it, I'd have to articulate that, so it doesn't seem like they came here just to have me and then go back home to Panama. Because um, that's like a move and that's a totally fine move also, by the way. Um, but I am first generation. My mom and dad had lived in New York in the 70s and uh, they're both tailors and my mom used to work for Santelli, which was, I don't know if they're still around, but they're like a fencing company, so she, uh, made fencing uniforms. And uh, I was born in 81, and my mom and my, my dad's naughty. He had many other people, and so my mom <laughs> left, and I moved. <laughs> it's too much, right? Like, is this what, is this what people want? I think um, it's what it is. <laughs> it's the altitude, guys. I'm just going to say it. Um, so I moved back to Panama, um, or moved there for the first time when I was a few months old and I lived there until I was a teenager, came back to the US when I, like 12, 13, so America, 92, 93. Thank you. So I'm a little bit obsessed with costume designers who are also directors. Um, I like Joel Schumacher? Uh, was he a costume designer? <laughs> he was. I was thinking more Julie Taymor and Ico. <laughs> yeah. That's where I was going. But um. that I'm going to start using that one. I didn't know Julie Taymor was a costume designer. Yeah. Great. That's a much better reference than Joel Schumacher. <laughs> yes. For me, I'm just always like Joel Schumacher, right? <laughs> and the Cell. Ico, the director of the Cell, was also a customer. Um, but how did you make the transition from doing costume design professionally and then um, getting here as a director? I, so my parents are both tailors. Style had always been very much a part of my, my growing up. Uh, my parents did this really great thing for me, which is that if I wanted an outfit that I saw on television, they would make it for me. Uh, or I would bring them something from like Seventeen Magazine and I'd be like, I wanna wear this, and then they would make it. And uh, that doesn't always go well in school because people make fun of you for weird clothes your parents have made, um, but I loved it. And I went to NYU for, I wanted to be an actor, but my, the studio that I went to focused on directing and design also. And I had done set design primarily, and then I stopped set designing basically because I didn't want to move heavy shit. Uh, I was like, this is, I don't want to move a dresser. <laughs> um, and I would like someone else to do that. So I stopped doing that. And I, I still love production design, but don't want to move things. Um, and then I, I, bec I started styling really because of another director. Mm -hmm. I had a friend <clears throat> this director, John Watts, uh, who, who makes the latest Spider-Man movies, he was working on his senior thesis. I was in theater school, he was in film school, and he was like, I need a, I need a costume designer or a stylist, and I dress pretty good, and I think that's how it went. He's like, oh, you dress cool, can you do that? And I, honestly, this is so goofy sounding, but I thought in, I thought that costume designers or stylists only did period movies mm -hmm. and that movies where actors dressed regular, that they did that themselves. What? I think most people think that. It's like <laughs> the, the most overlooked thing. I have a personal mission. Yeah, like if it looks regular, I just thought the actors mm -hmm. did it. And I didn't even know that was a job. So I did it for him and I was like, I like this. And then I'd known a bunch of directors in the film school and they were fortunate enough to get to start working right away as directors after we graduated from college. So 
I was styling pretty immediately and like learning and failing as I was going. Like, I was like, oh, that's not how you do that. Um, <laughs> oh, options, mm, okay. <laughs> you don't just bring two and go, right, one of them? No, you need like racks of options. Figure that out by the 40th job. But I had always been directing, always. Mm -hmm. And for me, styling was in a way my waiting tables, which I also did, and I also worked retail, but it was never, that wasn't the thing that I wanted. It just, it was in a way handed to me or in front of me and I liked it or took pleasure in it because it meant that I could be on set and I could be around people who were getting to do the thing that I wanted, but directing was just very, directing in film or TV was very far away for me as in that. The directors that I cited before that when we graduated they got to be directors right away or say that they were directors right away, they didn't have to take care of themselves financially. They had access to cash or uh, apartments that were being paid for and so they could step into saying that they were those roles or funding those that work on their own because they had money and I didn't and so you know I called myself a director but oftentimes didn't necessarily feel like I was one because I wasn't actually really doing it and so I would do styling work I would save money and for about four or five years I had this pattern of saving money and then making my own play you know I would do a play, find the space for it, get the actors. We'd rehearse for four, five, six weeks. Then we would mount the production. And I would just put all of the money into it. Um, and then, you know, go back to styling again and then do that. And I did that for about four or five years. Have I answered your question? I can yeah. rattle, as you can tell. <laughs> Oy vey. That's great. <laughs> so um, with your parents being from Panama, um, I don't know if you consider yourself a black Latina or Afro-Latina. And I was curious, um, that is often an invisibilized identity. Um, people don't know that there are black people in Latin America. And so I'm curious for you if that um, background factors at all into the kinds of stories that you're drawn to. Okay, I feel like there's like two questions there. Do I consider myself black, Latin, Afro, Latin? Yes, I do. I, now, I do now. I, when I first moved to the States in my sort of conscious mind, I, my mom and dad, the way they process race or conversations around race are, is really not okay. Um, and when I say not okay, I mean like they raised me to then have very strange conversations around race that I like later learned when I had black friends. I was like, oh, those, that's not how you talk about that. Um, and what that means is, of course I'm, I'm black, they're also black, but being from Latin America, I think, in sort of explaining their end, I think that they, it's so much um, divide there is economic, and of course the economics are often linked to like color, but it is because it's economic, I think that they never, they knew, my mom and dad knew that in America being black or being African American had, I guess for them when they moved here, been something reductive. And so that when, the way that they had raised me, it's not that, uh, I'm not sure that I'm being entirely articulate about it, but I guess when I was at school, I knew that I was black, and when I was at home, I was Latin, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> maybe, and I say maybe because they also didn't feel like, I, they didn't think I was Panamanian because I didn't grow up the way that they did, but they, they felt I was American. It was sort of very complicated, and I really, I feel in college, kind of came into a sense of like what my racial identity was, and it was because I had a, good deal of black girlfriends and 
and then in terms of like how in, in the work that I make and how I process myself racially, I made this joke very recently about Zola. Zola is the first film I've made with a black female protagonist. And in a way, I feel like it's my coming out party. I'm like, I'm black, guys, you know? <laughs> um, not to say that I didn't think that I was before, but that's how I have been treated in certain spaces because my feature before this featured a white male Jewish person and a lot of, of my eight short films, only one of them featured a, a black protagonist, which was Lakeith Stanfield, and the others had had white protagonists. And I think that unfortunately, sometimes I was processed as like, my face is black, but the work isn't, and I'm like, but there was, it was always race, uh, always imbued with race, and there were oftentimes actually like dissections on whiteness, and I don't know what I'm saying anymore, but um, I feel like the better I have done in my career, I have found that Latin people have accepted me where I didn't feel that they were accepting me necessarily before. You know, mm -hmm. Spanish is my first language. Mm -hmm. um, and when I started out and was seeking out these spaces that were Latin in particular, I felt not invited, not only because of my blackness, but because and maybe mostly because of that, actually. Um, and it's right before coming to Sundance, got invited to like a lot of Latin things, and I would want, I keep wanting to have this like hostile response of like, <laughs> oh, now I'm Latin. <laughs> now, okay, I get it. Um, mm -hmm. Hola, you too. Um, okay. <laughs> um, and, and maybe that's unfair and whatever. Everybody's get we, people are, they get better. They get better. And I think they are getting better. And, or they, at least um, perhaps they're more aware of uh, where they have excluded people who look like me. I think that was great. Thank you. Okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. To also jump a little bit, um, but relate it to it. So you collaborate often with your husband, Brett Gelman. Brett and I are actually separated. Okay. Um, and we separated like, it'll almost probably be two years this summer. Uh, but yes, we had collaborated a good, we have collaborated a good deal together and we still collaborate together. Um, Brett Gelman, who is an actor, was the lead of my first feature, Lemon. And he had had smaller roles in some of my other short films. And uh, I, actually, this is great because some of the, I have been bluntly asked, not once at this festival, but in the past of like why I was working with white actors. And uh, I work in comedy, that is, I consider my, my space to be the comedic space. And I was with a part, my partner, Brett, who was my love interest then and now is my friend, was also in comedy. And being in that relationship had provided me access to certain actors and their pretty well-known actors or decently known actors and you know I don't know if you know who Michael Sarah is but he was in my second short that had won an award here and you know I'd met Michael after I'd done my first short which had starred Brett and this actress Catherine Waterston and and he wanted to produce my whatever I wanted to make and so he was producing that and then you know, he then he wanted to be in it, and I'm, I wasn't going to say no to Michael Sarah. I, I understood <laughs> that it, I mean, I, I was like, I get this business. If he is in my short, it means like five more people than we're going to watch it before we're going to watch it. Yeah. And, and basically from Michael, then there was Gabby Hoffman, and then from Gabby Hoffman, there was Allison Pill, and, and they're also all like theater people. You know, I was like in this 
very white community, uh, theater community, comedy community, and that's who I had access to. And it was, I mean, bluntly, I knew, I felt I had access to better fest, I felt I had access to the festivals I wanted to get into, or the festivals I felt like, oh, these are the ones that, if I check these off, maybe I get to say that I'm a director, maybe I get to work in this thing, you know what I mean. so that was the answer to, is Brett my partner? Actually, I didn't ask what? that. <laughs> what? It's okay. It was, it's great background. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask how you met. We don't need to know that. Um, but I also wanted to just make the observation that I love that it, between the two of you over the, the many films you did, it's a turn on the kind of conventional relationship where often, I mean, if we have all seen a marriage story, I imagine. And so there's often the male director and his wife as the muse. And I love that yours was turned around. Um, and so I just wanted to make that observation. Oh, thank you. But I appreciate the rest. <laughs> you know, what's wild yeah. about that, though, is that people would still think that he directed the work sometimes. Of course they do. Yeah. Or like stuff that we wrote together or that I wrote by myself that he was in. They were like, well, you wrote it, right? Mm-hmm. Or there would be the conversation of, yeah, but it's mostly improvised. Like, she didn't. And, and what was incredible about Brett was that without even asking, he just all, he was so confused by that. And in his like wonderful Jewishness would just be like, what, like, huh? Like I, he's like, have you met me? It's impossible for me to have come up with this. Or it's like, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't think like this. Or he always put the, the credit on me or gave, gave me the space to have the spotlight. And it was like sort of disturbed how it would still continue to happen over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and on all of the actors that I got to work with always really gave me the space to say that it was mine and but you know when written about it would be kind of sh- I, I would be the last mentioned or I'd be like oh his and his wife directed it mm. what <laughs> so yeah I'm sadly not surprised <laughs> can you talk a little bit about some of your key influences I don't know if they're visual artists or theater directors photographers like who are your you know guiding lights I would say for, for theater, um, I mean, well, I, wait, what do I mean to say? As a theater person, I, the directors that I gravitated towards had also been theater directors. Mm-hmm. Bob Fosse, John Cassavetes, uh, Rainer Werner Fassbinder, that they're, and, and I think the reason I had gravitated towards them was that I didn't really know before NYU, before, when I got into, I wanted to be an actor when I went to NYU, and then I got into this program where I also had to direct, which at the time I was sort of like annoyed by, because it felt like it was in the way of the thing that I really wanted. And until my, my freshman year professor told me that I was a director, I had, didn't know that I was allowed to be. And so while at theater school, I think I still didn't entirely believe that I was allowed to be because I didn't feel, I didn't have a clear example of someone who looked like me, who was doing it. And so I found, I found Fosse, I found Fassbender, I found Cassavetes, and they, they made me think that I could because they had started in the theater and, and the film space was incredibly intimidating and like at NYU those film kids were like such dicks and like um, and I I felt if they could if those guys could if they could have had their roots in theater and transition into film and also their work had felt incredibly theatrical my work is super theatrical and so 
I thought, oh yeah, so I can still do what my skill set, my skill, I feel I am inherently a theater director. Mm-hmm. And, and I can direct theater, but like on camera, that's totally possible. And that the, those guys told me that that was possible. That's great, thank you. Are there aspects of the uh, filmmaking process that you nerd out on most? Like, are you into lenses? Are you into blocking? Mm-mm. Like, Yes, okay. I'm like lenses, mm-mm. And I'm nothing <laughs> technical. I'm so grateful that at none of my Q and A's, somebody asked like what we shot the movie on. I was like, a film camera. <laughs> Um, Maybe. I mean, yeah, like I care, obviously. We do a camera test and I'm very, I was very involved in like the lenses we picked, but I don't know what they're called at all. I meant to ask my DP so I would be able to sound smart at answering that, but bl- blocking. I'm a, a total theater nerd in that way. I'm very blocking centric. That like matters the most to me. If I could rehearse, I would love rehearsal. I don't have enough money to rehearse, but you know, little pockets of rehearsal on the day, but that that is... If I, I, if I look at getting to make a film as a, as a whole, my favorite part is working with the actors when no one else is around. Mm. And, and that is the thing that feels the closest to theater and my favorite part of theater is the rehearsal process. So the 2014 short, Gregory Go Booms, starring Michael Sarah won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. And I'm curious for you, kind of related to what you just brought up about people not assuming that your <laughs> voice is part of this work, um, how did winning such a huge prize shift your career trajectory and opportunities after that? It changed my life, actually. I mean, I, I have a few of these moments that have, like, I'm like, oh, and that's my change now, or, or that's my big pivot. I had, I made this short before Gregory, no one cared. Um, except Michael, who then, you know, I got to make Gregory with, so that was awesome. Which is the short eat. Yes, right? okay. exactly. And um, so we, we came to Sundance. I had been to one other fest, film festival before this, and it was South By. And I didn't, I think I, I didn't necessarily know that it could propel me forward and that is to say I had had other instances that I thought might do that and they didn't and so I kind of had no expectation of this exactly but then when it happened I had so much expectation and you know then took a really long time to get to the next thing but I was just reminiscing about this last night with my my agent because we met the night I won that award she was an assistant at at UTA and she's this very small person who like um, walked over to me at a fireplace and was just like whispering in my ear and I was like, who is this? And, um, and she gave me a card and it like didn't have her name on it, but she was like, you know, and anyways, we've been working together ever since and she was, we were reminiscing about like, you know, she was feeling very proud that we were here together and I was like, oh yeah, and so while like we met here and you became my person and my, one of my biggest champions and, and when, she became my agent that I could say that I had that, even though it like nothing happened. In, but in a way, it, it validated me. It was for me, actually, that I was like, oh, I'm, on, I'm in the right direction or I'm headed in the right direction. And That's great. I really enjoyed, I'm going to fast forward to Lemon, which is the 2017 feature. And one of the things that I was super geeked out about is that I watch, you know, like I always say, my favorite genre of film is like white hipster, like, you know, <laughs> malaise, you know. And I'm always curious about what, what I'm happened. I'm going to steal that. Please do. Okay, thank you. Um, but I'm, I'm sitting, I have one of my best friends 
Rashid, we sit around and go, gosh, I wish I could have directed that. You know what I mean? And so we saw Lemon and we were like, oh, we did. You know, and I really love that you had this opportunity to examine whiteness in this way. Um, but there are things about it that only a black person, I think, could have also done. Um, and so has anybody seen Lemon in this room? It's great. All right, thanks, you five. <laughs> <laughs> but there's certain sequences in there that I think are so... Um, well, for one, um, Nia Long's character, who's supporting, um, I think generally would not have had a backstory if it had not been your direction. And so the fact that we get her backstory at all or that it's treated so lovingly is like this little small window, I think, into who you are. Um, and so when Rashid Shabazz and I were talking about um, you know, preparing for this, I was just like, I know she's black. You know what I mean? Like I was like, I know she's, I can just, I can see it in the work. And I was really excited yeah. about it. But anyway, I wanted to ask you, uh, there were some critics who said about Lemon, you know, should a woman of color be telling the story of this white uh, guy? And I, you know, obviously that's ridiculous because white men have been telling black women's stories for 100 years. But I wanted to ask you, if you want to address that, you don't have to, but what would you say is the running theme of your work? I would say that I am attracted to people at the wrong place, wrong time, emotionally, geographically, socially. I like displacement, or I should say, I think I have felt displaced a lot in my life, and I have felt like my voice was very small. And the through line of all, all of my characters, even, even Zola, is is that they feel or the world treats them like they are invisible. Uh, Zola is different because she like has so much power and so much agency, even though the world doesn't necessarily want to give it to her. She like takes the spotlight and gives it to herself. And the other a lot of the other characters are incapable or they're not they're not socialized enough or born with the tools enough to be able to take that. They're rather overwhelmed by their circumstance. And would you say that there is a kind of uh, interest in absurdist realism? Absolutely. Yeah, I like the like kooky bananas, like what? <laughs> and str discomfort. I think I like, I'm also interested in examining anxiety and discomfort and stress, I would say. I, I think my, my comedy or my style is, I call it stressful comedy. And it is. If you've seen anything, it's all very stressful, but funny. And I think that that's the... I like, I like that feeling, not in life, obviously. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> but I'm, I'm conscious of that feeling, and I, and I don't know that you would relate to this, but I think, you know, being in these bodies, like, there is a lot of stress, like, all the time. Really? I know, it's a weird, it's like crazy idea, throwing it out there, uh, but um, have you experienced stress? And I mean like all of the time, like from, like, from eyes open um, to eyes closed, and I think that it is a totally a part of my processing, and uh, all, all of the work is in some way an exorcism of the things that make me feel bad, and even though Brett, who is the protagonist in Lemon, Isaac, <clears throat> I felt I, I, that that was me. That was my own feelings of, am I going to wake up one day and not have arrived at the life that I thought I deserved? Mm -hmm. And it was 
a a dissection of what that looks like in your love life, your career, and your social life. Like, what does it look like to fail at every at every stage? And and also there, are, as you said, that your favorite that your favorite genre. A lot of that genre of of like sort of hipster, uh, you know, thirty something year old white guy comedy is that you meet this guy, he's like in his 30s or 40s, and I think he has a job, but I'm not sure if he ever goes to it in the film. Um, and he tends to have like a pretty sick place. You're like, what, where's, how's that happening? And, um, and he has like a great partner, this great girl. I mean, we only know she's great because he said so, not because <laughs> she's done really anything, um, because she's just there to like support him. They're gonna have a fight, he's gonna win her back. But for no reason, and and the world is centered around him, and he's like the like softest, lamest person in the whole planet, and it's funny and humored and full of heart or whatever the fuck, and um, we're never talking about like these guys are so pathetic, and the women who are right next to them are fantastic, or they're you know one black friend who's like in the corner who said three good lines, like that guy seems kind of curious. Um, and like they seem to be in a world of very curious people but that don't get a lot of the spotlight. And I think I just wanted to sort of make fun of that space or like what if you actually like said that guy is a failure and you watched him lose at everything and it just wasn't gonna work out. You know, the movie ends and he's got like shit on his hands, literally, because that's what he is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who would you say you make work for? I feel... My, I'm like, huh, how do I answer that? I think there are a couple of different answers there. I, the first is myself, first and foremost, because it's, it is how I am able to wake up and get through it and you know, know that things are gonna be fine for me is having, that the, the getting to make the work for me and myself is how I, I heal or I, I get on. So that's kind of, that's the first answer. There's like the film festival answer, <laughs> which is, you know, having had the, the luck or the, the pleasure of getting to play my work at a bunch of festivals, like mostly everyone in the audience has always been predominantly white. And that was like, sort of, I didn't know that. And um, it, every once in a while, like one young black woman or like young black boy will come up to me and I'm like, you're here? Um, and, and those conversations that I've had with them in those instances have been quite special. I mean, the work is for anyone who feels they need it or the work is for anyone who wants to go to it. I don't, it, it's, a, it's a tough question because I think for every artist, for all of us who make things, we want to make work that, it, that it is accessible to everyone. Or at least for me, I would love to make work that feels accessible to everyone. Um, you know, that's how you, you grow the audience and that's how you get to make more work if like, people are paying to go see your shit. Like, that's just like how that is. But yeah, I don't know. It's a, that's a really, I don't know that I have my like, single perfect ideal of what that person is because every person that's sitting here every second of how you process and engage is, in, is influenced or dictated by like how you were treated and how you were reared and how you go in and out of spaces and days. So it's like, I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. 
okay. I apologize. <laughs> no, thank I'm gonna you. have a really good answer the next time. <laughs> I think it's a really tough question. Yeah. So you've been a director for some of my most favorite recent television shows, um, including I think your first television gig was being the only guest director the first season of Atlanta. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So she directed the Juneteenth episode. Can you talk about how that came to be and also just how fantastic, is it amazing to work on the show as it might seem? Abs yes, it was, it was the best. And you know what sucks about it being the best is that every show I did after that, I was like, <laughs> truly in that so how I came to get the job was I had worked with one cinematographer for most of my work and he is who shot Atlanta his name is Christian Springer and I had heard from Christian that when and and at the time Hero who does most of Atlanta and Donald had worked with one DP I don't, I don't know his name and he wasn't available and so they how they got to Christian was that Donald had really liked Gregory Goboom a lot and had pulled some references from some like, you know, visual references from it for the show. And then they met Christian and Christian said when he like came into this room, it was, and I'd done a couple of other short films that no one will know, so I won't even name them. But anyways, and there were some stills from some of that work. I mean, they were really just referencing Christian's work, but it was work that I had directed. And... And he just said that to me. He was like, it was so cool, I saw that. And I was like, well, I mean, shouldn't I direct then? Um, <laughs> like, obviously, like, I mean, that's you, but it's also, it's me. Like, those are, those are my shots. Uh, that's my blocking. Um, those are my ideas. Uh, so I, I mentioned that to my manager, who was, like, instrumental in how I got this job. I was like, hey, I heard that these five stills from these three films are in that room. If they're considering a guest director, it should be me, like no question. And he represented, I think, Hero's partner and mentioned that to her. So it was some like not the right way to do it thing, but it worked. <laughs> and I got a meeting. I asked to get the script, whatever episode they were considering me for, and I read it, and I went in with like so much research. Like I had two days to work on it. I did like, this is what act one, act two, act three look like. Um, I had music that I pulled for like, there's like a slave hymnal that's happening. I had all these like hymnals that I thought would be great. Um, I was like, these are the napkins that I think that they would have at the party. This is the art in his office. And I think that like, I'd done my homework so well that I made it, I think, hard for them to say no to me because I was just so studious. And, and we got on and then I got it and it was, it, to date it's still one of the best jobs I've ever done. I mean, you know, of course, the goal is to like, just make my own work. And I work in television so that I can eat food. And um, that was the best through and through experience I've ever had. It was so collaborative, it was so open. I was very much invited in and given room and allowed to say, you know, maybe we could try this or cut this or like I was invited to participate and there were no executives around. It was insane. I was like, are we allowed, like does someone want to say we're doing it bad? Um, <laughs> and there was just so much freedom and then leaving that show, basically every other thing I did, I was like, oh, there's no freedom. There's always somebody watching who thinks they know better. They don't. Wow. <laughs> 
I want to move on to Zola a little bit um, before we open it up for questions. But I did want to ask you before we do that, do you have any aspirations to work in any other aspects of filmmaking or any other mediums as an artist? And also just wanted to tell you I thought you were great on camping. So oh, thank you. you. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of want to do a little bit more acting but I don't want to do like auditions, so <laughs> that's gonna go well. Uh, <laughs> I just like want it without trying, I guess. Um, so that's yeah, Th that's a bad. That's bad. Don't <laughs> think that way. Really try hard for the things that you want. Um, I w I'm curious about acting a little bit more. I would like to try it a little bit more. I feel the. It's acting is so scary to me, and I I like it because I feel like I'm horrible at it the whole time, and that's like something that is is exciting to me because it is so challenging and so distressing, and also I like watching other directors work, and it's like the best way to watch another director work is to be directed by them, and also to you know see what the set dynamics are, and uh, like I love that part, uh, so I would like to do more of that, and I think that I would like to work in the art space. That is to say, like, short... I, I loved making short films. It's sort of unfortunate that there isn't, like, a good deal of money in that space, really, to, like, get money or even, like, make money, because I really love that. It was such a good exercise for me. I didn't go to film school, so my short films were where I learned, and I felt very sort of safe and comfortable failing in that space. I mean, now I'm doing it on television, so that's curious. Um, I'm like, you're paying for me to fuck this up. So I, I would like to do that, and I really miss theater. I, ho I hope to get to go back to the theater sometime soon because I, I haven't been able to direct a play in, oh gosh, I think in like a decade, and I, I feel most at home in that space, and I would like that. I read somewhere that you said the story of Zola was somewhere between David Lynch and Cardi B. Yes. And can you say more? <laughs> I, I think it is at the, the, it was, I think it's at the intersect of Bodak Yellow and Blue Velvet. Uh, <laughs> if, you've, if you've read those tweets, it, for those who haven't read the tweets, because if you've read it, you know what I mean. If you haven't read the tweets, basically the, the short, the summation of this movie is, Two girls, one black, one white, become fast friends and take a road trip from Detroit to Florida to make money stripping, and then things go, like, not good. Every second, not good. It goes into, like, a demon space, and it is really funny, really uncomfortable, debatable, a lot of bad vibes, but also just so funny, and it takes place in the world of, of sex work, and... I come from comedy, if you had pitched me that without the sort of like humored elements, I would think I am not the right person for this, but because it had so much humor and, and was so aggressive, I felt you know, the most fit to tell this tale in it. And when I read it, I think that the woman who wrote the story, whose name is Asia King, she's the real Zola, she did this sensational job of telling this very electric story in the Twitter space that reminded me a lot of Lynch's work and naturally because it took place in like she's a, she was a stripper, she used to strip, um, it felt like Bodak Yellow because that was like also like super hot at that time when I was reading it. So I like could hear, I could hear Cardi B's voice and like feel the like discomfort of David Lynch's work, you know? So. 
there's the question that just popped up that's not on here, so I'm going to ask it so okay. I don't forget and then come back. Um, how did Twitter as a format factor into the way you told this, the way you made this film? Twitter without, I mean, I just give it away, who cares? But I was going to say, oh, I don't want to give it away. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of musical element to Twitter uh, in the film uh, or a, a sound that kind of speaks to Twitter and then there that is an homage of Twitter and there is I am not on Twitter for those of you who are bless you <laughs> I don't know how you can handle that interface it's like so I, I can't, can't the way it looks I'm like <laughs> um, someone showed me a tweet yesterday and I was like how, what order do I read this in um, I I I think I tried to communicate there and I got like really worried and nervous and was like, nope, not for me. I like pictures. But it, there is, it feels wild. I mean, from when I have engaged with Twitter or looked at it, it just feels fucking wild and like out of control. And um, I remember actually Brett, who had had this like interaction that went really intense with like Adult Swim who Brett's Jewish, I'm black, you guys know that. Um, he had uh, sort of like, he used to work at Adult Swim or had done a lot of shows on Adult Swim and had had this thing happen where there was a show on that network that was alt-right and he spoke out against it and then that show ends up being canceled and like there's, I guess, a pretty strong alt-right presence on, on Twitter and so uh, they were sending him violent threats and he was getting phone calls and mail at our house and it was super scary and he called it I'm trying to get to the thing that he called it is Twitter's the new clan rally and I was like I don't just don't think that's for me um I don't think the new clan rally is like where I hang out but um but it has a like a rhythm and an energy that is like really pointed and her voice the real Zola's voice also has that right it's sort of like a knife and hope that it does this. I don't know. I can't speak to it because I've been inside of the movie and it's, you know, it's still very much like tethered to my inside. So I don't, I don't know because how I feel it and see it is different. I've been with it. I, I know all the, you know, the beats. Um, but I hope that it feels congruent with the way that Twitter moves, that it has that kind of reckless abandon that that space seems to have. Mm -hmm. And it's also, the movie as a whole is also in a way a love letter to the internet and a love letter to screens, but really black Twitter. I mean, like black Twitter made that story fucking fire. And, and also, I, you know, I haven't read any of the reviews or anything like that about the movie, but also I think that there, I have heard that black Twitter has rallied around that it exists as a film and that there is a film and that it's here. Mm -hmm. So my last question, I'm just gonna cheat and um, cause I got the look to wrap it up so there's two sides um one is what did you bring to the film that no one else could and uh what's the most surprising thing that you discovered making this the thing that i feel i brought to it that in another director's hands would i'm certain not have happened is that i felt i i knew that i would protect the story i would protect the protagonist it was the real woman who wrote it at the time, when she wrote in 2015, she was 19, and she is not in this industry, and it mattered a good deal to me. And I knew that if I got this job, she was gonna get producer credit, she was gonna be a part of every conversation that I, could, that I was you know, privy to, allowed to include her in. You know, talking about casting, talking about the scripts, like, it mattered to me that 
I didn't want to like show up at Sundance and be like, hey, what's, who are you? I wanted, I needed her to feel like she was as special as she was to me because she was and that she was important because she was in the way that I would have treated anyone else's source material that we would have adapted were they, you know, still here. We would give them, we would roll out the carpet for them and make them feel like they were stars and she was and she is and I, that, that's, I can say that with certainty that I feel I'm one of the few people that would have done that. Mm-hmm. And and very comfortable with taking the back seat to her being in the lead. And, and it was such a beautiful thing to be here for the last few days and have her be at like all of our press and all of our, I'm gonna like get emotional, oh my <laughs> God. Um, and no thank you, so I'm gonna stop talking about that. <laughs> um, and then the second question was? What was the most surprising thing you learned? The most surprising thing I shot in Tampa, and this happens in my TV work too. You can have a series of good days, and then you think, oh, now everybody thinks I'm competent, and everybody thinks I deserve it, and every day is a reset for me. Every day is a reset. It doesn't matter if I've killed it. Every day is a reset. I'm still going to get a PA talking to me like I work for them. I'm still going to have Crafty being like, wait, can you, and I'm like, I'm not moving the trash can, no. Um, or people asking me where the bathroom is. Like, every, every single day is a reset. And that was painful, and I'm so curious if whatever I do after this, that will be, if it will be like that. And I, and I think it probably will be, unfortunately. And th- this came up at the last panel I was at, and I, I think it, it kind of pertains to this, but um, our moderator had, had asked, we were a panel of diverse directors, and it was a question of like, are you allowed in more of those rooms now that you weren't in before? And the answer is absolutely yes, but I am not being given the same tools to succeed with. I am in those rooms, but I'm give, being given less and being expected to succeed at the same level, but with a lot less. And so visually what that means is you have a seat at the table, but your plate's a saucer and you know you're, you're, you have only a spoon to eat a fucking steak and you know there's no napkins and you're, you're so it is not the same, um, but you're expected to excel at the same level without the same tools. Thank you. Thank you. So you have a question? Or no? I thought I saw a hand. Okay. We'll start with you. Okay. (laughs) I read the Twitter thread at work and it was like wild. Um, So I guess I just wanted to ask about the process of casting Taylor as Zola. From the Twitter thread it's like she's a larger than life personality it seems. So like how did you no, Taylor was the one. Question. I uh, I wanted Taylor very. Er- there was another iteration of this film without me uh, that had another director, had another script, and I when I came on, Taylor was like my first choice, but she had said no to that previous project, and I hadn't. I just gotten it and hadn't written it yet, hadn't like started writing it yet. So when we finished writing it, it took like. I got into May 2017, and I think the script was like done and greenlit by the following year, 2018. So it took about a year to get it like to a place where uh, A24 was like, "Great, this is now the movie we're gonna make." And so when we, in that whole time, we had been auditioning people with. I'd written this monologue. I basically put together this monologue um, that was 
a, a, a truncated version of her Twitter. And we had like 800 girls, almost 800 girls audition. And I kept being like, I know Taylor said no, but like, can we see her again? And then she got the script and she came in and I was like, yeah, that's her. I know it. I just knew it. I had seen her before, like just walking on the street in a neighborhood that I live close to. And I was like, oh, that's Zola. Cause she was just like, I don't know. She was just being something that was like the way that she was in her body and she's a dancer and she's very comfortable and she's got like attitude and yeah, it was just her. So being a director and being a black person and being a woman, I know that you dealt with so much and you touched on it. How do you then go and get behind that camera and lead everyone and lead the film shoot, lead the television shoot, knowing that you just dealt with that discrimination and trying to put that behind you and still have that level of, um, of confidence and just direction? There are so many women, there are so many women who've done this before me who, I, you know, I, I wonder, I'm like, didn't Julie Dash want to make another feature right away? And I'm like, I think about those women who have done this and as painful as it is for me and as much as I want to go home, I'm like, I don't get to because it has to be easier for the next person. And so if I have to feel this in this way, it feels fucking bad but I need to ensure that it is easier for the next person because it's easier for me because of them, even though it feels like shit, but it is a little bit easier for me because of them. So if I can make it just a little bit easier for the next person, it's worth it. I'm kind of cheating. Um, Dream, you're not allowed to ask a no, question. I don't want Come to. on. I'm thinking about comedy, right? And I'm thinking about sex work. Like you have, we have a scene that you thank God you cut away from what looks like about to be like a gang, not rape, because she's being paid for this sex work and she's negotiating in the moment not to give too much away. But obviously we're having a public conversation about comedy and what can and can't be, like comics feel like, oh, you're trying to like ruin my whole vibe and with this PC stuff. And I'm just wondering about, I know that there's a need for comedy in times like this, my God. Um, but I'm also wondering about the kind of thinking that you were doing as you were talking about really hard sex work um, with, through this comedic lens. It was, you know, that was probably, I think after the movie was done, we had a screening of it, a pretty small screening of it. Uh, A24 had one and then I got to have one in LA and both were really funny, and I remember walking out going, oh no, I just made a movie about sex work that's funny. Oh my God, and I felt like crazy a little bit, and then I remembered that this is her story. This is, this is Asia's story, this is Zola's story, and that is what her story is. And so my job was to make sure that I told her story the way that she wanted me to and the way that she expected me to. And I do not think that space is humored um, at all, but it's how she got me to have a conversation with this space. And what I had hoped is that the serious part of the conversation happens after, right? You go, great, I laughed at that, so now I can talk about this. In the way that like, this is not the same at all, but do you remember like that, like Sally Struthers commercial from like the 80s with like kids with flies on their head and you would just be like, no, 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 I can't. 
or there's the like Sarah McLaughlin sound commercial with the dog in the cage or snow and a cat and you're like what the fuck and you just like have to turn it off like you don't want to and it's very easy to turn it off walk away and just be like I'm back at my life that's not what's happening and then I'm going to wait till that's over and what I hope is that because we have al- add where there's this added like palette palette it's a little more palatable, right? Because you can laugh at it that then hopefully it create, you're not able to turn it off because maybe it's more accessible allowing us to have these conversations that are like quite severe. And on set, it was always those scenes that are specifically like with men and the women and in sex were, you know, the least funny days of working. And yeah, so... I have a kind of boring question. I love the movie, and I loved what space you gave Asia Zola at the premiere and the spotlight, but I also noticed that you were saying at the premiere that when you were, the intellectual property is like, like Twitter's an accessible space, but the intellectual property is not the tweets, is that right? It was the article about the tweets? So I don't know if Twitter's different now. Okay. Again, I'm n- no Twitter expert, um, and I'm sure Google could tell us what's happening, or Wikipedia would tell us this, but at the time, when I, I read them in 2015, and I wanted them then, and with like my like agent, my manager, I was like, how do we do this? Like, twi- what's Twitter IP? Who do you do you call Twitter? Like, what's the, how do you do this? And um, and like, do you reach out to Asia? Like, I, we just didn't understand. There weren't any rules for how to do that exactly. Um, and so what happened was that there's this article that was written in Rolling Stone about her, and it started as like getting the rights to the article, which then became getting her life rights. And that's how, so getting her life rights meant getting the, the Twitter story. Okay. That's how, that was like, it was n- not the clearest way to it, but it was sort of a circuitous way to get to like that. But it could have been someone could have done it without giving her I think you could have done it without her life rights. I mean, I'm sure that would suck for you because she's very vocal and she'd come for you pretty hard. Um, <laughs> So I don't know that you'd want to do that, but yeah, I, I think you could. I mean, we don't have the life rights of the other characters in the movie, and that was like a kind of a you know interesting thing to sort of talk about. One of the characters is in prison, and everyone was like, "So that doesn't matter," and I was like, "It doesn't." Um, okay, I mean, he's still like a full person, but fine. Um, and then the other two people, you know, they're the, the film as you saw is rather surreal, so. It's everything's larger than life. I, I saw footage or like looked up those real people, and we went for something a bit more extreme. I mean, the the white girl character in the movie, the real person is, she's not like that. At least from what I saw online, she doesn't like talk like that and she doesn't dress like that. So it's 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 a bit, it's much more hyperbolic. My interpretation is rather like cartoonish almost. Are there any other questions? So, um, super interested in your background in theater. Um, can you be like theater nerdy for a second and talk like Happily. favorite play or favorite Shakespeare or like yeah. what? Like yeah, what? Um, I did. I got to direct. I did Romeo and Juliet at a church in the West Village. Um, I love that play. I'd love to do Macbeth. Um, I love Chekhov. 
Um, one of my favorite plays is Mud by Maria Irene Fornes, which I'd love to make into a film, actually. Hopefully they'll hear this, because they are being very difficult. Um, uh, I, I like the, I, uh, who is it, Pinter? I like, can't remember words now. I like Pinter, I like Beckett. I, I'm, I'm Heiner Mueller. I, most of my theater is experimental, or when I did theater, it was like physical experimental theater. So you know, like real weird shit, so that. I read that your thesis project was an adaptation of Dangerous Liaisons. Three and a half hours? Three and a half hours. Damn, where did you read? Where is that? that I, need, I need to remove that from the internet. Just to... <laughs> I was just wondering if you could speak maybe a little bit on your experience working with A24 in general. Um, yes. I, A24 is why I have this job. Uh, I'll just bluntly, they're definitely why I have this job. I, there was, there was another director, there were other writers, and it then became available in early 2017, and I auditioned pretty aggressively for three months with another director that I know, who is my friend. And towards the end of the audition process, while auditioning directors and narrowing it down to these two, there was also, the, the, there are a lot of producers on this movie and they had also been finding their, their financing partner and when they landed with A24 I am, I am told by multiple people that A24 said they would do it if I was directing it and, and so that's how we got here uh, they had seen my feature Lemon they really loved it. I mean, it wasn't for them because they didn't buy it. But they really loved it. And we kind of became friends. We met at the festival that year. They came to, some of, some of the A24 team came to my premiere. Um, and we just were friendly after that. And they'd always check in about what I was doing or what I was working on. So they had been watching me for a little bit. So that's, that's how our relationship started. I think I saw another hand back there. Yep. Um, you briefly touched on not really being that well-versed in the technical aspects of filmmaking somewhat. So I was wondering, what is your relationship between you and your cinematographer when trying to convey to him or her how you want your shots to look, how you want it to feel, the, you know, just the whole thing, being that you may not have it, the extensive knowledge that they have. So how was that communicated between you guys into making these beautiful pictures? Um, that's a good question. I think that because I am not technical doesn't mean I don't have opinions. I have many of them. And if you've seen anything that I've directed, if you walk away from that movie and don't know that I directed the shit out of every fucking second of that movie, you are insane. Um, and I say that because I very recently, there was this question actually that someone asked me about like after the screening last night as if I had had nothing to do with what something had looked like. And I, I don't know what the cameras were shooting on, but I know blocking, I know performance, I know what lighting feels like, I know costumes, I am a designer, and I am a part of every single conversation. I do extensive dramaturgical research for my work. Before I got this movie, I had already done like a three-act visual structure. I had picked the music. I was like, this is the lighting, these are the gestural tones. Like, these are the physical gestures that these characters are going to embody. This is what this person is dressed like, that person is dressed like, this is the restaurant we're shooting in. These are what the motels look like, palette, photos, movie references. I do all of the work and 
So my relationship to my cinematographer is, you know, we watch the handful of movies that I, I narrowed down a list of about four or five films, uh, some photo work as well. For this movie in particular, Philip Lorca de Corsia's Hustlers, Deanna Lawson's work. There's this Argentinian photographer who goes by Suffer Rosa, uh, who had been a huge influence for us. And then we had our films, The Wiz, Coffee, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Natural Born Killers. And we would pull references for each of those and how they worked like scene to scene. Um, and you build your shot list. and. And I, again, if you've seen my work, it's very theatrical. There's not a good deal of coverage. A lot of things just exist in the wide, sort of like you're shooting proscenium. I hope that answers your question. Uh, so I know you addressed a little bit how earlier in your career, people were wondering if you had the right to tell like white male stories. So how do you feel about moving forward white filmmakers telling the stories of black people or should white people be focusing their energies on supporting black people just telling their own stories? If that Does that make sense? It does make sense. Okay. I say all of that, yes. I think that this is a conversation I have with some of my peers, my, my specifically my white male directing peers. I'm not going to name any names, but this idea of I think they should cast non-white people in their work. I, the question of like telling those stories, I think that feels like a little bit different. I'm more like, why don't you just cat, like put people in those in those in in your work? Because there is a black actor, a Latin actor, an Asian actor, they don't necessarily need to be tethered to what you perceive to be, whatever you think that story is supposed to be. Like, if we were to cast Marriage Story, like you know, Viola Davis could have been Laura Dern's part. Like, that would have been fine. You know what I mean? Like, thinking in that way. Like, if Noah Baumbach looked at that movie, I don't know why I'm coming for Noah Baumbach. This is so dark. Um, uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know what I'm saying. You look at a movie like that, like, why couldn't there be a black person in that movie or a brown person in that movie? Or, you know, I'm, I'm going to not do this anymore because it's going to get bad. So that's what I mean by that. like current working directors. I mean, I, I said it earlier, Bob Fosse, John Cassavetes, and Rainer Werner Fassbender are my directing heroes. How about women heroes? Who are your female heroes? Don't necessarily have to be the directing role. Um, uh, uh, Elizabeth Lecomte, who started the Wooster Group, is one of my female directing heroes. Agnes Varda, uh, I'm like, well, who is it? What is there? Uh, Lynn Ramsey is a genius and very special to me. Uh, Pina Bausch. Um. I have one really silly question, if you'll allow. Yes, of course. Not silly. It's actually very important. Um, so I love how you look today. Oh, and thank I have you. noticed that you have a very distinct look often. And I was wondering... Um, I'm not surprised when you went into the level of involvement that you have, as a director should, but not all directors are that involved. Because um, another filmmaker friend said when he found out another friend was becoming a director, he was like, no surprise, look at how you dress. And there's something about <laughs> the way that you choose to present so carefully that does not surprise me that you then bring that kind of carefulness to your work. Um, and so my question was just sort of, having had a practice as a designer, production and costume, and thinking about your look as a director, as an artist. Um, how did you come to this look? I think style is inherent. Um, I, it's just, 
<laughs> it's just inherent. I mean, you know, I think I'm thinking right now as we're talking about this, like those Jamel Shabazz photos that are some of like the most inspired, incredible, like the style is so incredible. Mm -hmm. And this idea of like wealth cannot buy you style. You see people who have tons of money and the, it's just the, the, the clothing is trash. And it's not about access to money, it's really about how you put something together, right? Like that's why I love a city like New York so much mm -hmm. because you can see at the highest and the lowest level, whatever that means like economically, and people look amazing. There was just so much expression. And my parents had always given, my mother always gave me that freedom. You know, I was able to buy, like go to a store and pick out the things that I wanted. I was able to like put together my own outfits from very little. I started ironing at four years old. I was like obsessed with ironing. Um, I loved it so much that- Doesn't that say a lot? I loved it so much. Like my parents paid me 25 cents per piece. I would iron their <laughs> things. Um, and I, and I, they would, yeah, I just like, I would on Sundays iron my Monday through Friday look with like two extra possibles is like, what if you don't really want that on the day? And in like kindergarten, like what's happening? Um, so that's why I'm here from that moment to right here sitting with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Can we give her a round of applause, please? So just want to say thank you. Can we give a round of applause to Maori for the moderation? And Janessa, congratulations on your film. Just wanted to say again, thank you to Sundance for the support and Open Society Foundations. Um, please follow us and thank you. Enjoy the rest of the festival. Woo!